Welcome to the Best of MBS, where you can enjoy some of the best interviews by Michael Bungay-Stanier, author of The Coaching Habit and How to Begin. For many years, I did five-year plans. I'd sit there every year and I'd go, okay, what are the next five years going to be like? And I would imagine great things. And just the other day, as I was sorting through old boxes of paper, I came across some of my five-year plans. And what is hilarious about them and slightly depressing is how little that strategy, that plan, bore to actually what happened over the next five years. There was almost absolute zero correlation between what I thought I would focus on, what I thought would unfold, what I thought would happen, and actually what did happen. I mean, if I look back to a plan I made uh, 10 years ago, in no way did it say Box of Crayons will become a successful learning and development company focused on coach training for managers and leaders. That didn't even cross my mind. And yet that became the focus and the, the drive for that business's success. So it is, it is tricky to think about strategy and to do it well. Thousands of people write about strategy Many thousands of people use strategy in a casual, offhand, ill-informed manner. And I was like, okay, I need to talk to somebody who really knows about strategy. And Rita McGrath is that person. So let me quickly introduce you to her. She is a popular speaker and author and a longtime faculty member at Columbia Business School. Her latest book, Perfect Timing, is called Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. And she's been on the Thinkers 50 ranking for global management thinkers for more than a decade and has recently received the number one achievement award in strategy. And in fact, last year, I was at the Thinkers 50 award. Rita was named number one strategic thinker again. I got to hang out with her at a table doing a strategic thinking exercise, which was hilarious. Because I'm like, what am I going to add to this conversation? I got nothing. Anyway, Rita, thank you for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. You're very gracious. Well, you know, I interviewed you a long time ago for the Great Work podcast when it did that around the previous book, The End of Competitive Advantage. And that was a intriguing conversation then. Mm -hmm. And I'm really happy to kind of dig into this now with you. And Rita, I would start by by helping me understand my younger self, you know, um, (laughs) which is a big ask, I realize. But so often I've seen myself and I've seen others create strategy. And then rather than it being a liberating effect, it becomes manacles. It becomes a a, a weight that weighs people down and limits them rather than liberates them. And I'm just curious to know from your experience in talking to so many leaders and thinkers, why do people get entangled in their strategy like that? Well, I think part of it is that having put all the effort into creating something we think of as a strategy to change, it often feels like a loss. It can feel like failure. Mm. Um, And I think people are very reluctant to say, well, there's new information, so I should change my strategy. If you think about it, you know, any strategy for any business, even four months ago, is now practically irrelevant as we right. are in you know recording this in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis. Um, so increasingly what I see as there's more turbulence, more 
change in the environment. We need to be what I call discovery driven, which is we have to be open to saying, hey, the assumptions that I made when I created this lofty strategy are no longer the way the world is. So we need to be able to adapt. That's really interesting. So there's a kind of a sunk cost issue that arises, which is like we've invested hours and highly paid people's brains into building this. We're reluctant to let it go now that it's been built. Exactly. And I think there's also this notion that um, a lot of people try to impose certainty where there is none. And I'm sure you run into this in your coaching work, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, people are very hungry for a sense of stability, a sense of certainty, a sense of, you know, I pick one foot up to move forward. Where am I going to put it down? I'd like to know where that is before I take that step. Right. Um, And I think at a a psychological level, we have this deep hunger for certainty. And it can be very um, difficult to let that go. When you're working with the people who you guide around thinking about strategy, um, how do you help people step forward with less certainty rather than more certainty? Well, I think the first principle is to recognize that when you're in a very uncertain environment, your ratio of assumptions that you have to make relative to knowledge that you have is is very high. Um, And so the goal is not so much to prove that you were right, uh, which would be the case, say, in a normal business context when Mm -hmm. you're supposed to be the expert, you're supposed to know what you're doing, right? But in an uncertain context, such as an innovation context or, well, every business today is really grappling with (laughs) high levels of uncertainty. So the goal is to really learn as much as you can, as quickly as you can. So what I encourage people to think about is not what's the 18-month plan because nobody knows. I mean, you don't know. I don't know. Nobody knows Mm -hmm. right now. But what you can know is, you know, what am I doing this afternoon? What will I learn? What are the assumptions I'm making? And how can I convert as many of those assumptions to fact as quickly as I can? And that's right. really the model. So it's it's not planning out for some distant horizon. It's planning as far as you can see and then stopping and then replanning. Huh. So that's really interesting. And, you know, I was just reading Alexander Osterwalder's, one of his latest book called Testing Business Ideas, and, and you're quoted liberally through that book around the ideas are everywhere, ideas are cheap. Um, it's the testing that mm-hmm. actually becomes the interesting piece. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really interested in that concept of you can only see as far as you can see. How do you help people understand where that horizon is so they're not looking too much at the tips of their shoes and they're not looking too far into a fantastic made-up future well what we do with a technique um, called discovery driven planning is we kind of do both so Mm. this would be in the context of a new business but i'll take it into the context of a present business so the first um question you have to ask is how good could this be so if this worked you know let's say you had some brilliant new idea. Um, I'll make this up. You know, I'm going to use 3D printing to do just-in-time supply of medical equipment, for example, which is something a lot of people are looking at now. Well, then the question is, okay, so that's that's an interesting idea. Uh, How big could it be? How much of a need could it address? How big is the population that has this? And then you work backward and you say, well, okay, if, if for that to be true, the following other things need to be true. Right. So you kind of work backward from the future. So you've got 
a future that's say 18 months or 24 months out, you work backward and you say, for that future to come true, here are the things that need to happen. And then you can work all the way back to, well, before any of that can happen, I have to know if, you know, how fast a 3D printer can print X, Y, right. right? Um, and so you test how fast the 3D printer can print. And that's in a step, but you've got the end goal in mind. So it's that kind of blend of of what do I right. want it to look like? What could it look like? But let's be practical about what we can learn today. You know, I remember reading Roger Martin's book on strategy. And one of the questions, not he got a, a kind of interlocking set of five questions around strategy. But in a separate piece of the book, he talks about a really powerful question, which you're alluding to here or, or explicit about, which is once you see a fantastic goal, you ask the question, what needs to be true for that to be true? Mm -hmm. And it stops the debate around how to get there. And it starts a debate around what, what actually, what's the data we require that would allow us to ensure that that is a goal worth pursuing. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. So part of what you're talking about in this um, discovery-based planning process is less of the huge leap forward and more of the kind of short steps forward once you know the general direction. Mm-hmm. If I'm a leader in an organization, part of me is saying, look, Rita, this all sounds well and good for my people, but I need to be projecting the big vision. I need to be that kind of leader that is known for my vision. That's what a leader is. Mm-hmm. Isn't this diminishing my status as a leader, as a person who's meant to set direction for my organization? That's a great question. Well, one of the things that that I think we've seen about leadership is that if you look at someone like Satya Nadella at Microsoft, for example, mm-hmm. um, he's very clear on setting broad direction. You know, his book Hit Reset was all about the future of Microsoft and how we need to be invoking empathy and how we need to yep. be doing things. But at the same time, he's really devolved a lot of responsibility way down the organization, which I think, you know, and you'll hear this from people like Stanley McChrystal, um, this notion of decisions should be made closest to the information that the decision needs to incorporate. So I think as a leader, what you want to be doing is setting broad direction, you know, so directionally people know what you're after, but letting the people who are closest to the problem actually make the decisions. And I don't think that diminishes you as a leader. So there's, there's a wonderful uh, anecdote, you know, about Microsoft. And uh, so one of the things that they're very interested in learning about is human to machine interaction, right? So how are, mm-hmm. there's a lot of talk about, well, you know, we're all going to be we're not going to be typing forever, right? We're going to be communicating with technology in a different way. And one of the things they were very curious about was, well, how is artificial intelligence going to be in that mix? You know, how will we relate to our technology? Mm-hmm. And so what they created was this little chatbot named Tay. You remember Tay? Tay was this um, yes. sort of female, I guess, 20-ish uh, chatbot. And they <laughs> I unleashed... I the story and it's <laughs> yeah, hysterical. They, yeah. It is hilarious. So they unleashed... Tay onto Twitter, um, and within about 24 hours, all the Twitter, you know, the, like the worst of humanity, had mm-hmm. taught Tay to be this like 
homophobic racist Nazi. I mean, just white ring supremacist. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, what's happened? To my, my, just my the cute word. little bot. Exactly. So nice. This poor little bot. Well, anyway, so of course they took Tay down and it was horribly embarrassing. And I mean, it made the front pages of all the newspapers and it was just a really bad black mark. You know, how could Microsoft have been so stupid? Blah, blah, blah. Um, and what I thought was fascinating was Nadella wrote the head of that, the unit that, that, basically did this experiment, he wrote a note saying, look, you know, that didn't work out the way we all hoped, uh, but I believe that this was an important idea and I've got your back. Don't, don't worry about it. Keep, keep yeah. trying. And so I think it's that notion of making the distinction between directionally was this in the right direction, which it was. I mean, you know, okay, it was embarrassing. It didn't put the company in a good light. It, it was sort of an illustration of how horrible human beings can be. But nobody died. You know, it didn't put any business critical missions at risk. I mean, right. in, in terms of the cost of failure, it was it was embarrassing. That's pretty minimum, all. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. but I think I think when you go back to your question about leadership, I mean, to me, that's real leadership. Saying, look, I understood why you did it. None of us thought this was going to happen when we agreed to go forward, and the unfortunate and unusual happened. And now we know to be a lot more careful letting Twitter get its hands on any of our creations. Right, <laughs> right. So, Rita, when you're when you're guiding and consulting and coaching the senior leaders with whom you work, how do you help them accept the idea that there will be bumps and dings and failures along the way? I mean, it's one of those things that's easy to talk about. I mean, I've heard Nadella talk about that. I've heard Mike Abrashoff in his book saying, look, there are above the waterline mistakes and below the waterline mistakes and above the waterline mistakes is how we learn and we grow. And all of that is good in theory and in practice in the moment, the moment basis, you're like, I don't want any mistakes on my watch because mm -hmm. it's ugly and it's messy and it's expensive and it feels diminishing. How do you help your leaders hold that space for, for the messiness that comes with this approach to strategy? Yeah, well, I talk about the concept of an intelligent failure mm. um, and making that distinction between an intelligent failure and the other kind in advance. So, right. you know, an intelligent failure is um, a case of something was planned carefully. So if it didn't work out the way we were hoping, we know why, right? So cardinal mm -hmm. sin there is if it's not planned carefully and you don't know why you failed, well, then you really haven't learned anything and you don't want to encourage that. But if it was planned carefully and you knew what was happening, um, that, that that's the first thing. Uh, secondly, you were able to do it cheaply. You were able to do it quickly. Um, you knew what the outcomes were and the cost to do the learning was commensurate with the value of the learning. So the way I try to get them to reframe it is don't think so much of being right, because in an uncertain situation, and I think right now this is a message everybody's got to hear, uh, we're not going to be right right now because all the rules have changed. Everything's up in the air. Nobody right. knows. Not you, not me, not the president, not the prime minister. Nobody knows. So right. the best we can do is articulate what our assumptions are. And if we can agree in advance that this is a reasonable set of assumptions and I'm going to make an investment in learning what the next mm. step is. Then the question is, was what I learned worth the investment? Not did I try something because I thought I was going to be right and I failed. The other challenge that I see leaders falling for is the, the desire to keep 
scaling their response to go big or go home. Mm. Um, and, you know, you, you've uh, recently had an article in HBR called Discovery Driven Digital Transformation. And one of the lines you got in there that really resonated for me was just because a threat is huge doesn't mean that the response has to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is this is the thesis of that article as, as in this conversation now, which is actually small steps where you keep reorienting and you keep taking in new information and you keep re-navigating based on the new content that's coming in. You know, this is what influenced the, the lean business movement and the MVP approach. And yet <laughs> people are going, yeah, but why don't we go big here? Why don't we over-invest? Why don't we kind of bet the farm? Because that was one of those phrases from, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, which is like, that's how you prove you're a leader. You take these bet the farm risks. How do you counsel people to play it small and take these smaller steps um, rather than trying to go all in just to kind of prove their prove their manhood? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm never a big fan of, you know, going all in just to prove your manhood. You know, so here's the thing. Um, and I think Jeff Bezos makes a great distinction here. He says, you know, there are two types of decisions. So type one decisions are irreversible, high risk bet the company, bet the farm kinds of decisions. And those need to be approached with a great deal of consideration and care because, mm-hmm. you know, that you can't reverse them. Type two decisions are reversible. If you walk through a door and you don't like where you got to on the other end, you just turn around and walk back through the door again. Yeah. Um, they're reversible. They're relatively low risk. They're not going to commit you to something that you don't really want um, um, to to be pursuing. So I do think there are times in strategy where you do need to make a big bet the farm kind of decision. And if you think about the big corporate shifts, so Intel, you know, abandoning memory and going into microprocessors or Adobe abandoning the shrink-wrapped software. I mean, those are big, you know, decisions. And, And I think both of those companies, you know, gathered a lot of information. And I think this is the distinction I'd encourage your leaders to think about, which is, big irreversible decisions, when you've gathered a tremendous amount of information and the patterns are now clear, that makes sense. That's very strategic. Mm-hmm. But big irreversible decisions when you've got just basically assumptions is is the road to folly. And that's what actually led to the original discovery-driven um, idea, which was um, I study corporate flops. And (laughs) I I have a file in my office called my flops file. And uh, you you have to lose your parent company at least $50 million to get into my flops file. That's the deal. And um, what I found was... It's an exclusive club, but probably not as exclusive (laughs) as we'd all like it to be. Exactly. (laughs) But, you know, even smart companies. I mean, you know, Disney, uh, when they first went to Europe, right, um, made a lot of assumptions about how the theme park would be used that didn't turn out to be... It was a disaster for the first number of years, wasn't it? It was, yeah, yeah. Um, but but it wasn't that they're a stupid company or they don't know how to operate theme parks. It's just Europeans don't behave the way Americans do mm-hmm. <laughs> when they're in a theme park. Um, and and so what we saw was this pattern, you know, untested assumptions taken as facts, very few opportunities to learn through low commitment tests, leaders, you know, irrevocably committed to a given course of action, uh, typically all the funding up front and typically a real kind of train start mentality. So we're going to put all these resources and everything on this train, and we're just going to head off in a single point direction. And when you're in a highly uncertain context, that's a very risky way of going about things. 
So if the, the train metaphor is really helpful, because I immediately get it, single point destination, we've already laid the tracks, we've, we've loaded everything onto the carriages. If there was an alternative metaphor you'd give people to go, so not the train, but try this instead, is there another metaphor that comes to mind for you? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I would say something spot. more more iterative. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. you know, probably... Um, well, yeah, there is an analogy I would use. So, and it's the analogy of, of driving. Um, so if you're in a car going along and you can see for quite a long distance out, um, mm -hmm. you can adjust your trajectory with a fairly small turn of the wheel. Right. But if you suddenly come upon an obstacle or a, or a risk, you have to make a huge jerk of the wheel to adjust. Yeah. And that's the way I would think about it, which is you want to be able to develop enough foresight so that you're not having to put your organization through a wrenching reorganization in order to accommodate. Yeah. One of the stories you tell in the, the new HBR article is um, about Hubert Jolie, who was the CEO of Best Buy, and he's a, become a friend of both of ours through the Marshall Goldsmith connection. And you really tell a, tell his story succinctly and really clearly around how he helped Best Buy reorient so that they could compete with Amazon and compete um, to, in a way that played to their strengths. Um, and part of the question I, I would have is, how do you help people to figure out where to focus and what to test? Because part of the overwhelm at the start of a planning process is every, every, every direction could be a good direction. And I, part of why I want to have a big strategic plan is it gives me the, albeit false illusion of certainty. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, look, at least I made a decision now. I don't have to worry about all the unknowns. Mm -hmm. Is there a, a way you coach or guide people to help uncover their, their strengths, the things that they should be kind of focusing on to say, let's build on this? Mm. Well, I think you really have to go back to what's the customer's job to be done, to use Clay mm. Christensen's phrase. And I think in the case of Best Buy, um, what what Uber did was he actually spent two weeks working in a store mm -hmm. and talking to customers, talking to the associates, talking to the people who knew the products. And a few things became very apparent very quickly, which was that, first of all, no customer actually wants a flat screen TV. You know, what they want is a flat screen TV that's on the wall, that's hooked to the <laughs> internet, that has right. Netflix queued up, that has a remote control you can understand. And so when you go, when you dig a little bit below the obvious, which is sure, you know, Amazon can sell you a flat screen TV cheaper than Best Buy can, but that doesn't mean it's going to be on your wall, hooked up, ready to go. Um, right. So I think you start there. And then he also realized that a lot of the associates were very frustrated because they wanted to do their best for customers, but they weren't equipped with the training, they weren't equipped with the tools, the technology they were had to work with was out of date. Um, and so what he did, and he would describe it as being this very iterative process. He said, you know, we took it one week at a time. And we said, for this week, this is what we're going to learn. And then we're going to get to next week. And we're going to look at what we learned the previous week. And we're going to see what happens next. Uh, he was very explicit about that. Um, but I think in general, you know, for your listeners, it, it's never, you can never go wrong by starting with What's the customer mm -hmm. job to be done? And how, you know, how do we play in that? And in the case of Best Buy, the insight was that there are things you can do by having a physical footprint that you simply can't do digitally. Right. I love that. 
For 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 people who, when you say customer's job to be done, who go, I think I understand that, but I'm not entirely sure. Can you just unpack that just a little bit for people? Oh, absolutely. So this was something that Clayton Christensen, uh, Innosite, a guy named Tony Ulwick all use, and they talk about outcomes. So if you think about you, you and I as people, um, Usually we don't, and, and what Clayton would have said was, you know, I don't buy products and services. Think of instead about hiring them to get jobs done in your life. Right. right? So if I go back to the Best Buy analogy, um, the job that I want is, you know, I want the tech to all work together. I want it hooked up. I want it seamlessly. I, I don't want to have to rewire. I don't want to have to, you know, I want the speakers to connect to the TV, to connect <laughs> right. to the remote control. I just want it to work. <laughs> I just want it to work. Exactly. And that's the job I have to get done. But if you think about the normal way in the past, yeah. a store like a Best Buy would have, would have dealt with it. It's, you know, they hand you a box, you throw it in the back of your car if you're lucky. And then mm-hmm. you, you know, you're home with a indecipherable instruction manual in 26 (laughs) languages and it's just it's a mess it's an absolute mess so um so the job to be done is is what's that final outcome that i'm really seeking to achieve one of the things that occurs to me as you talk about this um approach to strategy and approach to planning and and having these iterations and cycles of discovery and having that influence to step forward is it doesn't feel efficient and, you know, there's a mantra or belief in organizational life like efficiency really counts because that's how we squeeze the sense from the top line down to the bottom line and make a difference there. I'm wondering if you could reflect on the tension you see between efficiency and resilience. Well, I think we've, you know, we're seeing all around us the consequences of an excessive focus on efficiency. And I think a lot of this comes down to the inadequacy of our pricing mechanisms. Um, And uh, Rebecca Henderson, by the way, who has a wonderful, wonderful new book out called um, Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. I think today's the publication date. Oh, that's great. I haven't heard of that. Fantastic. Yeah. And you should have her on. She's she's marvelous. But, you know, she talks about how we misprice things. So as an example, um Say you wanted to know what the price was of enough coal to produce enough energy to power your computer for an hour, let's say. And let's say that was five cents. And in a normal market, you would say, okay, I'll pay you the five cents. That's great. We're done. But she says, then if I turn around to my public health people and I say, what's the cost to all of us um, to have this amount of coal be burnt? And that might be another five cents. Uh, and then you go to the environmental people and say, well, what's the you know environmental right. burden of that same unit of coal? And maybe that's another five cents. So here's the problem. When we talk about efficiency, what very often we're doing is we're only seeing that first five cents. We're not seeing the total impact right. of our decisions. And we don't invest in resilience. You know, We don't invest in um, building resilient systems. Now, if you think about that, um, the reason we don't is because we often neglect to understand that we are likely to be affected by a once in a while remarkable event. So if you take something like um, building codes in Japan, right? I mean, big, big, big earthquakes happen, what, once every 50 years? Um, But would you build a building that couldn't withstand that or that wasn't resilient in the face of that? No, you wouldn't. And so I think what we don't do is we don't bring into the present the risks of the future in this focus we have on efficiency. 
You know, I love that you're saying that. And one of the upcoming guests on the show um, has written a wonderful um, book called the the oh, what's it called? It's called the Optimist Telescope. Mm. Um, and it is all about that whole tension between how do we keep bringing awareness of the f- the future self back into the decisions of the present self, and how mm-hmm. difficult that is. How we're just not that good at it as human beings, mm-hmm. but for our systems to thrive and survive and be resilient, it's an absolute necessity. Well, I think I take a lot of um, um, comfort from uh, what are called HROs or high reliability organizations. And these have been quite extensively studied. So it's things like uh, disaster response, uh, firefighting, mm-hmm. um, you know, organizations where they really have to get it right, like, you know, aircraft flight systems. And uh, what you find is a set of common principles. Um, so there's real mindfulness, there's redundancy. So if one part of the system goes down, it doesn't take everything else uh, with yep. it. There's the ability to close off parts of the system um, and, 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 and. So what I think is encouraging is that we do know how to design these things. We just don't apply right. it more universally than it should be. Rita, this has been a fantastic conversation. I uh, <laughs> I sit at your feet <laughs> and I learn so much. So thank you. <laughs> Um, for other people who'd like to sit at your feet, who'd like to find out about the work you're doing, where you are on social, and they're like, where can they find you? So I'm on Twitter at RG McGrath. I'm on LinkedIn at all the usual places you would find somebody on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have a website very imaginatively called RitaMcGrath.com. <laughs> Brilliant. Rita, you're awesome. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us for the best of MBS. You can discover more great content in MBS's newsletter and in his books at mbs.works.